Did you know that for decades, gonorrhea has been evolving to be resistant to antibiotics, and some strains have even become superbugs? So, you know, more good news. This is Pulse Check. I'm Alice Miranda Olstein. This week, for the first time in a decade, HIV infections rose in San Francisco, But the jump might also be explained by testing lags, like old tests from 2020 getting grouped into 2021 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. On Wednesday, the Senate held its first hearing on monkeypox. Senators from both parties slammed the government's response to the ongoing outbreak and criticized the slow vaccine rollout and the vaccination gaps in communities of color. And a near-total abortion ban in Indiana, the first state to pass one since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, is expected to take effect today. Reproductive rights groups have sued to block the law, and the case will be heard in the coming days. And now my colleague Aaron Benko is here to tell us why Bill Gates has been nearly single-handedly running the global COVID response. Really good question. Yeah, we've been spending the past seven months researching this topic with my colleagues at Politico EU and the newspaper Welt in Germany. Basically, what we did is we felt like there had been a lot of sort of criticism or accountability stories that had been done on how governments across the world responded to COVID domestically, internationally, but less had been said about sort of the other side of the global health community, which is really run by these very powerful and rich NGOs. And what we found was that collectively, these organizations held a lot of sort of political and financial might and helped shapeshift health policies, both within governments, at the WHO, on how they all responded to COVID globally. So you point out that, you know, unlike governments, which have more transparency, we can FOIA the government. That's not the case with these private organizations. There were some issues with the vaccine's intellectual property where it really came into play why it matters to have this response be somewhat privatized. The accountability issue, I think, is a really big one. And it's this accountability issue has been something that the global health community has talked about for a really long time. But I think it's especially important to talk about in relation to COVID because these organizations spent billions and billions of dollars on their COVID response, on basically helping to sort of shape the world's policy. But these organizations will tell you, like, we are only responsible to our boards, right? We're not governments, we're not sovereign entities. But you know, that's a little tricky because they did play such a huge impact in the world's response. Mm -hmm. And there's something to be said about that, right? When they are making life and death decisions about how people around the world get access to some of these critical COVID tools, global health advocates will argue there should be more accountability and transparency. On the IP issue, on the intellectual property issue, You know, it's very well known that Bill Gates in particular came out pretty early in the pandemic and was against, you know, any waiver on intellectual property as it related to a COVID vaccine. He argued it really wouldn't do anything in the short or really medium term to get vaccine to low-income countries, that they didn't have the technology or the capacity, even if they had those waivers, to then go ahead and produce the vaccine. Jeremy Farrar at the Wellcome Trust was sort of the only exception to this rule. And that created a lot of problems in the global health community and at the WTO. I mean, these organizations hold so much clout in the global health community that when somebody like Bill Gates comes out and says, hey, I don't believe in this, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not we should go along with Bill Gates' view, who has, you know, a ton of connections with the pharmaceutical industry, 
helps fund a lot of the global health community. It created a bit of chaos, I should say. But the foundation eventually did come around and support the waiver, but some global health advocates would say far too late. So when you raised some of these issues in interviews with these organizations, they were predictably defensive and said, you know, look, it was better to have us doing this work than nobody. And governments weren't stepping up. They weren't getting these vaccines out to people. And we were. And even if we didn't hit our goals, it was at least something. What do you think about that argument? I mean, the argument makes sense. Like, look, particularly wealthy Western governments didn't do enough to help people in low-income countries get vaccinated, access to tests and treatments that they needed until much, much later in the pandemic when the waves weren't as bad. And so I think that argument does make a lot of sense, but it doesn't mean that these organizations that we looked at didn't have missteps as well. And we think it's really important to look at some of those missteps. For example, here's one really sort of simple example. They helped set up and lead a initiative at the WHO where they hold a lot of clout to distribute really critical COVID tools like tests and treatments and and vaccine. And they had all these really lofty goals and did not live up to those goals. And there hasn't been a lot of news on that or reporting on that. And millions of people across the world still aren't vaccinated. And that's not just the organization's fault. But there's a lot to say about what these organizations promised, what they did and what they didn't do during the pandemic. So how does this balance of power change? Does it change from Congress allowing more taxpayer money to go to fighting pandemics so that it doesn't fall to these outside organizations? Does it happen at the global level at the WHO? So it's really interesting. About eight months ago, these organizations really started to shift directions in terms of how they were spending their money, particularly their lobbying money. There was a big push to sort of move on from COVID and to start preparing for the next pandemic. And there was a lot of pushback even from civil society organizations and global health advocates on the ground in some of these countries like, hey, look, why are you pushing to move on when we're still in the middle of pandemic? In our reporting, we basically found that there's some skepticism that anything will change unless there are really critical, transparent postmortems from some of these organizations from the WHO. And there really hasn't been much of that. What we've seen from our own Congress, from, you know, governments across the world, particularly in these wealthy Western governments, is that there isn't really an appetite right now to put up more funds for anything global health related. Global health funding, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would say that just in terms of appetite and what people want to fund, there isn't a huge push to put up funds for global health right now. Erin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Can't wait to read your whole investigation. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. And we are back. Government data just released shows that STD cases are climbing. Well, my reaction to, you know, these tremendous rises in syphilis uh, in particular is, you know, deep concern. That's Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, a professor of medicine and public health at the University of Southern California. Well, STDs go up basically when our ability to control and prevent STDs goes down. And there's been a massive uh, loss of funding to local STD control programs, and that uh, causes clinics to be shut down. We just don't have the public health uh, workforce that we used to have. Syphilis rates jumped 26% last year. 
syphilis in pregnant women can cause congenital syphilis in newborns, and the United States really should not be seeing congenital syphilis in newborns. Uh, about a quarter of those cases in newborns will result in death, and the others will result in long-term disability. So it's a real tragedy that we're seeing increased cases of syphilis that affect pregnant women and newborns. So I've been reporting for years on STDs, and these increases we're seeing are really troubling. STDs are completely preventable, and they are treatable if they're caught in time. But if they're not, and you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people skipped testing, a lot of testing facilities weren't even open, it's costing our country's medical system billions of dollars. There's going to be a funding fight on Capitol Hill for more resources to address this. And if you want to read more about why STD rates are increasing, check out my story on politico.com later today. And that's our show this week. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our producer. Our editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Alice Miranda Olstein. Thank you for listening and talk to you again next week.